This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello and welcome. In his book, Polishing the Mirror, How to Live from Your Spiritual Heart, the great teacher Yogi Ram Das writes this, One way to get free of attachment is to cultivate the witness consciousness, to become a neutral observer of your own life. The witness place inside you is simple awareness, the part of you that is aware of everything, just noticing, watching, not judging, just being present, being here now. The witness is actually another level of consciousness. The witness coexists alongside your normal consciousness as another layer of, wa- of awareness, as the part of you that is awakening. Humans have this unique ability to be in two states of consciousness at once. Witnessing yourself is like directing the beam of a flashlight back onto itself. In any experience, sensory, emotional, or conceptual, there's the experience the sensory or emotional thought data, and there's your awareness of it. That's the witness, the awareness, and you can cultivate that awareness in the garden of your being. The witness is your awareness of your own thoughts, feelings and emotions. Witnessing is like waking up in the morning and then looking in the mirror and noticing yourself, not judging or criticizing, just neutrally observing the quality of being awake. That process of stepping back takes you out of being submerged in your experiences and thoughts and sensory input and into self-awareness. Along with that self-awareness comes the subtle joy of just being here, alive, enjoying being present in this moment. Eventually, floating in that subjective awareness, the objects of awareness dissolve and you will come into the spiritual self, the Atman, which is pure consciousness, joy, compassion, the one. The witness is your centering device. It guides the work you do on yourself. Once you understand that there is a place in you that is not attached, you can extricate yourself from attachments. Pretty much everything we notice in this universe is a reflection of our attachments. Jesus warned us, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt. For where your treasure is, There will your heart be also. Desire creates your universe. That's just the way it works. So your first job is to work on yourself. The greatest thing you can do for another human being is to get your own house in order and find your true spiritual heart. Now how do you think this fits in with what we were talking about last week? Remember that in our exploration of the seven points of mind training we'd come to the instruction primary importance should be given to the two witnesses. We mentioned that the two witnesses were ourselves and others, but of these two, oneself is the more important. As Nam Karpel writes, other people may also serve as witnesses, commenting that you are engaged in proper practice and that your mind has become smooth and cool, but this is of no help. The vitally important thing is that when we examine ourselves under any circumstances, we should see that we are not deceiving, fooling or embarrassing ourselves. 
If we have trained our minds with regard to the most unpleasant worldly phenomena and achieve what we desire, this shows that we have trained our minds. Now it seems to me that perhaps Ram Das and Nam Kapel are talking about different aspects of the same thing. To understand that we can be the witness of our own behavior with a view to modifying it, we have to recognize that we are not our thoughts, emotions, impulses and so on. We have a consciousness that assumes the aspect of these things but is not of them. It is not them. There is something else that can step back and observe these things passing through. And that something has the ability to decide to act according to them or not. Now if we have adopted a certain way of life with precepts, vows and so on, we can use that watcher to see whether we are living within that way of life and if not, correct our behavior, as Namkapal recommends. But beyond the internal policeman is a profound, profound realization. Stepping away from all we regard as me and mine and letting go into pure awareness, becoming merely the observer without identification or judgment, brings us to another level of experiential understanding. As Ramdas says, along with that self-awareness comes the subtle joy of just being here, alive, enjoying being present in this moment. Eventually, floating in that subjective awareness, the objects of awareness dissolve and you will come into the spiritual self, the Atman, which is pure consciousness, joy, compassion, the One. Now, of course, Buddhists would not identify that state as self or Atman, but it's undeniable that at its most profound, it is the state of non-duality, pure consciousness, joy, and overriding compassion. And with that thought, before going on, let's think about our motivation for the program as we usually do. As we've spoken about overriding compassion, let's make that the basis for bodhicitta motivation, wishing to attain enlightenment so we can be of greatest benefit to all beings. Thank you. So we are talking about training the mind and last week completed commentary on the previous instruction in the text which was integrate all practices into one, meaning that everything should be done with the idea of freeing ourselves from the misconception of self. This ties into becoming the observer or witness as that is beyond the concept of self. It is the state where we can see that everything passes and nothing can be identified as me or mine. Then, when strong urges or impulses arise, we can recognize them for what they are, just manifestations of grasping at an independently appearing self that has no real existence at all. Yet, through our strong instinctive belief in it, we are compelled to act in inevitably harmful ways. In his commentary to Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, His Holiness the Dalai Lama puts it like this, the commentary to the text says that if we have trained our attitudes towards life with thoughts of impermanence, then no matter what we see throughout life, we will see that it is impermanent, that it will pass. Likewise, if we have trained our mind to think about the disadvantages of selfishness, the sign of having done this is that in any text we read, in any activity that we come upon in which we see the various faults described, we will identify with these faults and fi feel that they have all arisen due to our selfishness. 
If we are always able to recognize the negatives we see as arising from our own selfishness, it is a sign that we have been successful in training our minds with these methods. As the seven-point attitude training tells us, we need to take ourselves as the main witness. We are the best witnesses as to how our minds are working, not others who witness and judge what we are doing. If other people must serve as witnesses to attest to the spiritual and religious things we do, there is the great danger that we are just putting on a grand show in order to have others think that we are such a wonderful spiritual practitioner. Rather, the whole point is that we do all these trainings internally. We are the main witness as to whether or not we are becoming a kinder and better person. We may add here some further quotes, mainly from the Kadam Geshis. When we see any fault, see it as being our own. If we see any negative circumstance that we meet with as having arisen from our own selfishness, this is a sign that we have successfully trained our attitude. The main point is always to be mindful, to think of the advantages of cherishing others and the disadvantages of selfish concern. And His Holiness continues, The real measure of having trained our attitude is that before we were always ignoring others and thinking only of ourselves. But if we now find that this has been completely reversed, that we always ignore our selfish purposes while thinking of others, this is the real sign that we've been successful. Now Ram Das has a beautiful story on his website www.ramdas.org of how a dolphin showed him to let go of his self-centeredness. He calls the story a model for human relationships, but I guess it can be a model for our relationships with all beings. Here's what he writes. I will tell you one short story. I was invited to swim with dolphins. There were two of them, Joe and Rosie, and they were in a large, large tank. John and Tony Lilly were working with them. So the day I came to swim with the dolphins and a friend, it was cold and grey, and I was sorry I'd agreed to it. But everyone wants to swim with dolphins, so I assumed I did too. I got into the water and it was incredibly cold, so I started to tread water. The dolphins then started coming towards me, and they were bigger than I thought they were going to be, so I started feeling really insecure. Rosie came up next to me, and people were outside the tank watching me with a the dolphin. They assumed Ram Das was very high, and so they also assumed it would be a very beautiful display. It's often very interesting when you're a holy man, and go into a house and dogs bark and children cry. It's like they bust your cover. So I thought, what am I supposed to do with this dolphin? I wanted to touch it, but I assumed it would be offended. It had a tail, so I thought it was a fish, and in the past when I tried to touch fish, it would swim away. I reached out anyway and touched Rosie. She didn't move, and so I touched her again and stroked her a little bit. Her skin was amazingly soft, softer than silk. I was thrilled and the experience was intensely sensual. My paranoia dissolved into a deeper feeling of love and after a few minutes she swam around and came up under my arm. I wanted to swim with her so I took hold of her dorsal, her back fin. She swam down and my hand slipped off but then she came back and swam back under my arm. This happened several times and I didn't want to hurt her, 
but I finally stuck my hand around her stomach and held her back fin. She started to move very fast, and I thought I was disturbing her, so I let go. She immediately came back to me, and I realized that she was training me. So I took hold, and we began swimming wildly through the tank. At one point, I needed air, and so she surfaced, and then we went again, swimming for a while, until I was again out of breath. The next time, Rosie dove down, and I thought, this is the moment of truth. But within ten seconds, she came back to the surface. She knew my heart. After about twenty or thirty minutes, I was very cold and shaking, so then she pulled away and got Joe, and they forced me out of the tank. Meeting Rosie was like meeting Maharaji. Maharaji was Ramdas's teacher. He says, It was a place that words were left far behind. My mind got into the way, but our hearts knew one another. To me, that's a model of what human relationships can be. The mind-training teachings will tell us that all our paranoia, all our unwillingness to get into cold water, our fussiness about touching others, comes from the self-cherishing mind. Once we can move past this mind, our relationships with not only other people, but everything that we experience, will take on a much deeper and richer meaning. Not to mention that the more we identify with what the selfish mind is throwing up, the more unhappiness we will experience and make others go through. The section of mind training like the rays of the sun that we are going through at the moment is titled The Measure of Having Trained the Mind and it is under this heading that the two instructions Integrate All Teachings into One and Primary Importance Should Be Given to the Two Witnesses come. Remember that these instructions come from another text, The Seven Points of Mind Training, which Namkar Pal is commenting on. The next instruction from the seven points of mind training is constantly cultivate only a joyful mind. To this, Namkar Pal says, having experienced the flavor of the teachings through meditation, whatever adverse conditions such as suffering and ill repute may arise, if your meditation is unaffected by such discouraging conditions and you only generate happiness and rejoicing, thinking, the practice of mind training through giving and taking has been meaningful, then the counteracting forces have been initially effective. In brief, it is a great mistake to destroy your virtue through anger that rankles over slight hardships encountered in the course of mind training. The great Shavuopa said, There is no worse form of abuse than to say your spiritual friend has no peace of mind. And we are certain to come across difficult circumstances no matter how far our practice has gone. The question is, how do we act under such circumstances? Do we revert to our old reactive patterns, or do we apply the mind-training techniques we've learned and act in a much more compassionate and wise way? Namkar Pal talks about the practice of mind-training through giving and taking, referring to Tonglen, or taking on the suffering of others and giving them our happiness. This is the result of bodhicitta, and our realization that nothing that happens to us is actually personal. We don't take it personally. The universe and all the other beings in it are not out to get us. As we saw earlier, whenever we experience some suffering, we can trace the source back to our self-grasping and self-cherishing mind. So there's no need to get angry and upset with antagonistic people and unfortunate circumstances. Recognizing that bad reactions 
just lead to more and more suffering. We cultivate the mind that finds something beneficial in all circumstances, good and bad. There is actually no need to get angry about anything, and anger only harms us and those we interact with. It really solves our problems. The great master Thich Nhat Hanh has a wonderful teaching on five points to maintain a joyful mind. There in his book, No Mud, No Lotus, The Art of Transforming Suffering, but I've taken them from the website www.lionsraw.com. Let's go through them. The first is letting go. The master writes, The first method of creating joy and happiness is to cast off, to leave behind. There's a kind of joy that comes from letting go. Many of us are bound to so many things. We believe these things are necessary for our survival, our security and our happiness. But many of these things, or more precisely our beliefs about their utter necessity, are really obstacles for our joy and happiness. Sometimes you think that having a certain career, diploma, salary, house or partner is crucial for your happiness. You think you can't go on without it. Even when you've achieved that situation or are with that person, you continue to suffer. At the same time, you're still afraid that if you let go of that prize you've attained, it will be even worse. You'll be even more miserable without the object you're clinging to. You can't live with it and you can't live without it. If you come to look deeply into your fearful attachment, you will realize that it is in fact the very obstacle to your joy and happiness. You have the capacity to let it go. Letting go takes a lot of courage sometimes, but once you let go, happiness comes very quickly. You won't have to go around searching for it. Imagine you're a city dweller taking a weekend trip out to the countryside. If you live in a big metropolis, there's a lot of noise, dust, pollution and odors, but also a lot of opportunities and excitement. One day, a friend coaxes you into going away for a couple of days. Now, at first you may say, I can't, I have too much work, I might miss an important call. But finally, he convinces you to leave and an hour or two later you find yourself in the countryside. You see open space, you can see the sky and you feel the breeze on your cheeks. Happiness is born from the fact that you could leave the city behind. If you hadn't left, how could you experience that kind of joy? You needed to let go. Thich Nhat Hanh's second point is inviting positive seeds. He says, We each have many kinds of seeds lying deep in our consciousness. Those we water are the ones that sprout, come up into our awareness and manifest outwardly. So in our own consciousness, there is hell and there is also paradise. We are capable of being compassionate, understanding and joyful. If we pay attention only to the negative things in us, especially the suffering of past hurts, we are wallowing in our sorrows and not getting any positive nourishment. We can practice appropriate attention, watering the wholesome qualities in us by touching the positive things that are always available inside and around us. That is good food for our mind. One way of taking care of our suffering is to invite a seed of the opposite nature to come up. As nothing exists without its opposite, if you have a seed of arrogance, you also have a seed of compassion. Every one of us has a seed of compassion. If you practice mindfulness of compassion every day, the seed of compassion in you will become strong. 
You need only to concentrate on it and it will come up as a powerful zone of energy. Naturally, when compassion comes up, arrogance goes down. You don't have to fight it or push it down. We can selectively water the good seeds and refrain from watering the negative seeds. This doesn't mean we ignore our suffering. It just means that we allow the positive seeds that are naturally there to get attention and nourishment. Thirdly, he talks about mindfulness-based joy, saying, Mindfulness helps us not only to get in touch with suffering so that we can embrace and transform it, but also to touch the wonders of life, including our own body. Then, breathing in becomes a delight, and breathing out can also be a delight. You truly come to enjoy your breathing. A few years ago, I had a virus in my lungs that made them bleed. I was spitting up blood. With lungs like that, it was difficult to breathe, and it was difficult to be happy while breathing. After treatment, my lungs healed, and my breathing became much better. Now when I breathe, all I need to do is to remember the time when my lungs were infected with this virus. Then every breath I take becomes really delicious, really good. When we practice mindful breathing or mindful walking, we bring our mind home to our body and we are established in the here and the now. We feel so lucky. We have so many conditions of happiness that are already available. Joy and happiness come right away. So mindfulness is a source of joy. Mindfulness is a source of happiness. Mindfulness is an energy you can generate all day long through your practice. You can wash your dishes in mindfulness. You can cook your dinner in mindfulness. You can mop the floor in mindfulness. And with mindfulness, you can touch the many conditions of happiness and joy that are already available. You are a real artist. You know how to create joy and happiness anytime you want. This is the joy and happiness born from mindfulness. Concentration is Thich Nhat Hanh's fourth point. Concentration is born from mindfulness, he says. Concentration has the power to break through, to burn away the afflictions that make you suffer and to allow joy and happiness to come in. To stay in the present moment takes concentration. Worries and anxiety about the future are always there, ready to take us away. We can see them, acknowledge them, and use our concentration to return to the present moment. When we have concentration, we have a lot of energy. We don't get carried away by visions of past suffering or fears about the future. We dwell stably in the present moment so we can get in touch with the wonders of life and generate joy and happiness. Concentration is always concentration on something. If you focus on your breathing in a relaxed way, you are already cultivating an inner strength. When you come back to feel your breath, concentrate on your breathing with all your heart and mind. Concentration is not hard labor. You don't have to strain yourself or make a huge effort. Happiness arises lightly and easily. And then finally, he talks about insight. He says that when we have mindfulness, we can see the tension in our body, but we may not have the ability to release it. What we need, he says, is insight. Insight is seeing what is there, he says. It is the clarity that can liberate us from afflictions such as jealousy or anger and allow true happiness to come. Every one of us has insight, though we don't always make use of it to increase our happiness. 
We may know, for example, that something, a craving or a grudge, is an obstacle for our happiness, that it brings us anxiety and fear. We know this thing is not worth the sleep we're losing over it. But still, we go on spending our time and energy obsessing about it. We're like a fish who has been caught once before and knows there's a hook inside the bait. If the fish makes use of that insight, he won't bite because he knows he'll get caught by the hook. Often, we just bite into our craving or grudge and let the hook take us. We get caught and attached to these situations that are not worthy of our concern. If mindfulness and concentration are there, then insight will be there and we can make use of it to swim away free. In springtime, when there's a lot of pollen in the air, some of us have a hard time breathing due to allergies. Even when we aren't trying to run five miles and we just want to sit or lie down, we can't breathe very well. So in wintertime when there's no pollen, instead of complaining about the cold, we can remember how in April or May we couldn't go out at all. Now our lungs are clear. We can take a brisk walk outside and we can breathe very well. We consciously call up our experience of the past to help ourselves treasure the good things we're having right now. In the past, we probably did suffer from one thing or another. It may even have felt like a kind of hell. If we remember that suffering, not letting ourselves get carried away by it, we can use it to remind ourselves how lucky I am right now. I'm not in that situation. I can be happy. That is insight. And in that moment, our joy and our happiness can grow very quickly. The essence of our practice can be described as transforming suffering into happiness. It's not a complicated practice, but it requires us to cultivate mindfulness, concentration and insight. It requires, first of all, that we come home to ourselves, that we make peace with our suffering, treating it tenderly and looking deeply at the roots of our pain. It requires that we let go of useless, unnecessary sufferings and take a closer look at our idea of happiness. Finally, it requires that we nourish happiness daily with acknowledgement, understanding and compassion for ourselves and for those around us. We offer these practices to ourselves, to our loved ones and to the larger community. This is the art of suffering and the art of happiness. With each breath, we ease suffering and generate joy. With each step, the flower of insight blooms. So those are Thich Nhat Hanh's five points to maintain a joyful mind. Letting go, inviting positive seeds, mindfulness joy, concentration and insight. After that, it seems fitting to end the program today with Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Our True Heritage, which goes like this. The cosmos is filled with precious gems. I want to offer a handful of them to you this morning. Each moment you are alive is a gem, shining through and containing earth and sky, water and clouds. It needs you to breathe gently for the miracles to be displayed. Suddenly you hear the birds singing, the pines chanting, see the flowers blooming, the blue sky, the white clouds, the smile and the marvellous look of your beloved. You the richest person on earth, who have been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come back and claim your heritage. We should enjoy our happiness and offer it to everyone. Cherish this very moment. Let go of the stream of distress and embrace life fully in your arms. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, and if you found some benefit, please do so again next week. Don't forget to dedicate any positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Go with the blessings of the great beings. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.